The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. This morning we'll give attention to Luke 18, verses 17 through 30. Follow along in your Bibles as I read. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you'll have the treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we've left our homes and we followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. I'm sure you were busy Saturday a week ago and probably were oblivious to this fact. It really garnered very little attention in the world. Uh, but a, a king was coronated in England, a new king. Apparently, you're too sleepy to recognize sarcasm this morning, too. Or you just weren't up at 6 a.m. when all that took place in England. It was quite the spectacle if you saw it live or if you saw it recorded. It was an event that was worldwide and sort of its, its draw prime ministers and global dignitaries and celebrities from all around the world made their way to London to be a part of the coronation along with a whole sea of onlookers who gathered standing in the rain, many of them for hours, to see Charles III, the oldest king of the United Kingdom to be coronated. He's 74 years old. All these people gathered to see this 74-year-old man sit on a 700-year-old chair and be crowned king of the United Kingdom. Everything about it was unique. 
I mean, I suspect you've all had parties in your life thrown in your honor, but I guarantee you, none of you have had a party like that one. From the special invitations to the very special quiche that was served. All the pageantry, of course. The gold state coach. Surely you saw pictures of that. It was quite a spectacle. A coach that cost in dollars adjusted for inflation about $4.2 million dollars weighing over four tons and drug along by eight horses. I mean, it was quite a spectacle. The whole thing. The ceremony took place at the Westminster Abbey, the site of English coronations for over 900 years now. This was the, the 40th time a king had been crowned in Westminster Abbey. The very first was a king called William the Conqueror all the way back in the year 1066. There in the church building, the coronation ceremony was presided over by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Because in England, the king is officially the head of the church. It's fitting that the coronation of the king takes place in the church and takes place in the context of a religious ceremony, a ceremony that is purposed in part to invest this charge in the man to be head over the church. Justin Welby, the, the now Archbishop of Canterbury, oversaw the coronation ceremony. A part of the ceremony involved a number of pledges of allegiance that were given to the king. The first was uttered by Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury himself, when he stands before the king and he says, I, Justin, Archbishop of Canterbury, will be faithful and true, and faith and truth will bear unto you, our sovereign Lord, defender of the faith, and unto your heirs and successor, successors according to the law, so help me God. He's followed by Prince William, the son of the king, who bows before his father and says, I, William, Prince of Wales, pledge my loyalty to you and faith and truth I will bear unto you as your liege man of life and limb. So help me God. New this year, the public was then invited to pay homage and pledge allegiance to the king, being led to say, if they so wished, I swear that I will pay true allegiance to your majesty and to your heirs and successors according to the law. So help me, God. As the king is seated and the pledges are made, the king is then anointed with holy oil and a crown is placed on his head. The, the holy oil is myrrh. You may recognize that in the biblical text. Behind a veil hidden from sight, the archbishop anoints the king with the holy oil on his hand, or both of his hands, his head and his heart. It places the crown on his head. In this case, a crown from 1661 that was solid gold framed, weighing in at about five pounds, containing somewhere in the neighborhood about 444 precious stones, emeralds, topaz, sapphires, rubies, of course, studded with diamonds. He's handed us a scepter, which has this magnificent piece of the largest diamond ever found in the world attached to its head. And he's given an orb, 
that looks like the holy hand grenade from Monty Python movies, but that's a whole different story. My point in going through all of this is simply to say you'd have to look far and you'd have to look wide. I mean, you really would have to search to be able to find and see a more significant display of wealth and honor and privilege all in one place at what time for one man. And it's apropos to reflect on that as we look at the text that's before us in Luke's gospel today. You say, why? Why? Because it just makes you stop and look at the ceremony and all of the pomp and all of the regalia and all of the elements and all of the wealth and all of the admiration and authority and all that comes with being a king and ask the simple question, what does all of that wealth and what does all of that admiration get Charles III? What does it get him? What does it gain him? What does the man gain by all of that? Now, you can answer that in a lot of different ways, but the Bible answers that question. In particular, Luke answers that question. In more particular, Jesus answers that question. You want to know what all of that gets Charles III. Here's what it gets him. It makes it nearly impossible for that man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It makes it nearly impossible for him to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says in verse 25 of our text today, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus does not mean some sort of a metaphor here. It is a metaphor, but he doesn't mean it in some sort of a, 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 some sort of a small gate to the, to the city. He means literally it's easier to get a ginormous camel through the eye of a tiny needle than it is for a rich person to get into the kingdom of heaven. The point is it's nearly impossible. Nearly impossible. All of that wealth and all of that status, it serves only to make it more difficult for Charles to be a Christian. All of that stuff does nothing other than blind him to his need for Christ. It fuels his own personal self-sufficiency. It competes in his heart for his allegiance and for his love. And it's a wealth that has an intoxicating effect on the soul and then has a tremendous draw on the affections and the attention of the soul. It's nearly impossible for any human being to resist. Now, if you've been studying uh, Matthew, or excuse me, Luke's gospel with us throughout this series, then you've seen Jesus has made this point in multiple ways, all the way back in chapter 1, verse 3, at the birth narrative of Jesus. We have Mary singing a song in praise to the Lord, the Magnificat, and in that she says this, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich, what's happened? He sent them away. If you flipped over to Luke chapter 6 and verse 24, we hear Jesus saying, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are rich. You've already received all you're going to get. And then in Luke chapter 8, he says, he's talking about the parable of the, of the, uh, of the sower. And he says, and for the seed that fell among the thorns, they are those who hear the, the gospel but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and the riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit doesn't mature. A reminder that wealth and riches is a way of choking out any maturity of the gospel seed. 
And then in chapter 12, just a couple of chapters back, he told a parable of a, of a rich fool. And, he, and in the midst of that, he said to them, take care and be on your guard against covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And that's the particular draw of those who are rich. They begin to believe that their life consists in the abundance of their possessions. And so Jesus here reverts back to this same theme again in chapter 18. Now in this section of Luke's gospel, he's been highlighting Jesus' teaching on his kingdom. He's been highlighting for us what the kingdom of God is really like. He's been explaining to us what it means to enter the kingdom of God, how a person gets in the kingdom of God, and what kind of people get into the kingdom of God. And he's been telling parables to help us illustrate it. There have been real life things that have been going on that he's used as illustrations to help us do that. And when we get to our text this morning, we find he's still talking about the same thing. He's still highlighting the kingdom of God. He's been using different words throughout. He's been talking back about just a, a little, a couple sections back about being justified. He's been talking about entering the kingdom of God. Here he's talking about inheriting eternal life. All of these are different words that are referring to the same thing. They're all referring to, the, to what it means to receive sal salvation and all the blessings that come along with salvation in Christ. In our text in particular today, he continues that theme. And specifically, he wants us to see what kind of people the kingdom of God is open to and what kind of people it's closed off to. That's the contrast that he makes for us here. So I just want to give you the first of two points. The first point is this. The kingdom is open to those who are helpless and dependent like children. The kingdom is open to those who are helpless and dependent like children, like kids, Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, if you're with us last week, you know the context. What's happening, Jesus has been teaching in crowds, and, and, and parents are sort of flock, flocking to him. They're wanting to bring him their little children, their infants, and their very young kids. They want to get them to Jesus so that he might speak a blessing over them that might have a positive uh, sort of holy effect on their life that might pronounce some blessing to them that would stick with them or perhaps protect them from evil in some way in their life. So they're pressing into Jesus, trying to get their kids to Jesus in order to receive a blessing. And the disciples are doing what? Well, they're shooing them away. They're saying, parents, get out of the way. Quit bringing your kids to Jesus. Jesus has more important things to do. He's a busy man. He's got other people to see, other things to do. Stop getting in the way. And they're preventing the kids and the parents from getting there. And of course, we saw Jesus publicly correct them. And he insists for them to get out of the way and let the children come to him. It was another example of Jesus' concern for the marginalized. Another uh, uh, example of Jesus receiving those that, that, that the society rejected. He's been doing this all along. People that the society around him would cast aside and marginalize. He regularly welcomes them. He regularly receives them. He regularly sits down and talks with them. He offers them salvation. You know, people like women, people like well-known notorious sinners, people like tax collectors and prostitutes and so forth. And you could add children to the list of marginalized people that Jesus welcomes. 
But at the end of that conversation, Jesus said something really remarkable. He says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Or if we wanted to turn that around and put a positive spin on it, whoever receives the kingdom of God like a child shall enter it. To whom is the kingdom of God open? It's open to people who receive it like a child. Now, what does Jesus mean here when he says to receive the kingdom like a child? Is he talking about some sort of childish immaturity? Is he talking about childish ignorance? That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is sort of a childlike faith. He's talking about sort of some of the characteristics that mark the, the, the way children navigate in regards to how they live their lives in faith. Young children, in particular, are helpless and they're dependent. All the moms in the room who've raised kids know this, right? When your babies are little, they cannot do anything for themselves. You have to do everything. Everybody is so excited when the pregnancy comes to an end, right? And there is waiting anxiously for that baby to arrive. And when that little critter gets here, he or she dominates every second of your life, right? The new moms in the room, through a yawn, yell amen. Because babies are helpless and they're dependent. They can't do anything for themselves. Moms and dads have to do everything for them. They can't feed themselves. They can't get around by themselves. They can't change their own diapers. They can't even tell you what they want and what's wrong at any given time. All they know how to do is scream and poop. Children need somebody else to do everything for them. They cannot survive on their own. They're helpless. You leave them on their own, they die. They depend on their parents to do everything for them. There is no ability to be self-sufficient in a young child. They're, they're helpless and they're dependent. But more than that, young children have no achievements whatsoever. I mean, every single thing they have is given to them by their parents, right? Like babies and little kids have nothing. They, they, have no, they don't go to work. They don't get up in the morning and throw on their clothes and walk out the door and jump in the car and go to work and earn a living and buy things for themselves. They have no achievements. They can't do anything for themselves. Everything is given to them. They don't work. They don't earn anything. They don't achieve anything. They haven't done anything. They can't hold themselves up as meriting anything. They have no resume. Everything they have is received. They're helpless. They're dependent. They have no achievements. And beyond that, young children possess a trusting kind of faith that is really unique. When kids are little... They trust their parents quickly and easily. Parents know that, right? You know, I don't think I'm unique in this, but, but parents, kids will believe anything their parents tell them. Like you can tell them you're Superman and they'll think you're Superman for a while. But kids believe anything. Kids will take anything that you hand them as a parent because they trust you. They have a trusting faith that you're going to do what's good and what's best, and they'll believe what you tell them. They'll take anything from you because they, simply, they don't ask a lot of questions. They're not skeptics. They just take it, and they just believe it. Now, occasionally, some parents might take advantage of that in the lives of their children. It might so happen that I found a video from early in my son's life and I have permission from him to share that with you this morning. 
of an example where something like that may have happened. Uh, take a look and see. Okay. Okay. Give me another one. Here we have. Read the video. Here it goes. <laughs> 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 that was the best one yet. why his mother would do anything like that to him. That hand with the lemon might have looked hairy and like it was mine, but I can assure you it was not. But that's the kind of trust kids have in their parents. They'll take anything you give them, even if it's a lemon. Now, in all fairness, before you label me a horrible parent, I may be that, but he wanted more lemon after the video stopped rolling. I'm just saying... But you understand, because you've done stuff like that to your kids. They have this beautiful sort of a trusting faith in you as a parent. They don't question what you're doing. They're not skeptics about you. They love you. They look to you. And what you say they believe, what you tell them to do, in general, they're going to do. Until their sin nature really blossoms a little later. What you hand them, they'll take. They're helpless, they're dependent, they don't have any achievements, they have a trusting sort of a faith. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is open to people like that. It's open to people who come to Christ like that, who come to Christ helpless and dependent, who know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they cannot save themselves, that if it's up to them to save themselves, they will not be saved, they will die and go to an eternal hell because they cannot do it. They're absolutely helpless. They know that the only way they can be saved is to be dependent upon Christ doing for them what they cannot do for themselves. They know that if Christ doesn't save them, they'll remain lost. Just like a baby knows if his mother doesn't feed him, it will starve to death. The kind of people that the kingdom is open to is people who come to Christ on those terms, helpless, independent, people who come to him with no merits that they're offering up as deserving of his grace. They know they can't earn salvation by their good works. They know they can't earn salvation by their religious activity. They know that it's not about being more moral than everybody else. They know it's not about how many rules they can keep or how many vices they can avoid. They know that, that, that Christ is it, and it's his achievement, and it's his accomplishment, and it's only on that basis that they can be saved. The kingdom is open to people who come offering no achievements to merit their salvation. And the kingdom of God is open to people who come to Christ with a trusting faith. They, they come to him, rather than being skeptics and questioning everything, they simply trust in Jesus to save them. They come to him saying, listen, I don't understand how all this works, Jesus. I don't have all of my theology figured out. I can't even explain in my own mind how the Trinity works or how the end times are going to play out. But here's what I know. What I know as I cannot save myself, and my only hope for salvation is to trust in you and that you'll work it all out on my behalf. And so I'm looking to you to do what I can't do, and I'm trusting you to save me. Those are the kind of people to whom the kingdom of God is open to. It's beautiful news, isn't it? That's great news. That's why it's the gospel. Anybody who comes to Christ like that will be received by him and offered eternal life, granted eternal life, in fact, based on 
his death on the cross on their behalf. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter where you're from. Doesn't matter how smart you are. Doesn't matter how many degrees you have. Doesn't matter how moral you are, how religious you are. Doesn't matter what race you are, what ethnicity you are. All that matters is are you willing to come before Christ as helpless and dependent with no achievements to merit salvation and simply trust in him to do for you what you can't do for yourself? Anybody who comes to Christ like that will be saved, will enter the kingdom of God. That's a beautiful truth, isn't it? It's beautiful. But to bring this point home, Jesus' next interaction really provides for us a very distinct contrast to that kind of approach. The next person he meets lacks all of those things. He's not helpless and dependent. In fact, he's, he's rich and he's self-sufficient. He's not without achievements. In fact, he's been a law keeper his whole life. He's not somebody who uh, has a, a real trusting sort of a faith in Christ. We find that he's trusting in his wealth, which serves really in his life as a functional God, and he doesn't even know it. We're told that a man approaches Jesus, he approaches him, and he engages him in conversation. Now, I think it's best to understand that this man has probably been hanging around for a while. That he's probably been on the periphery of this crowd listening to what Jesus has been saying and watching what he's been doing. Probably his engagement with Jesus has, was sort of sparked by this interaction with Jesus and the disciples and the children. When Jesus says things like, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, the only way to do that is to enter like a child. It, it brought up in this man's mind a thousand questions. He knows he's not a, a child in any form or fashion, and he's concerned genuinely about his soul, and he wants to know how to inherit eternal life. He's just not sure what he needs to do in order to get that. And so we're told that he approaches Jesus. We have limited information about him, but each of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give us some different information that put together gives us a little bit of a composite picture. Luke tells us that he's a ruler and he's extremely rich. Matthew tells us that he's young. So he's a young ruler who's extremely rich. And Mark tells us that in this particular encounter, he ran up to Jesus and knelt before him. So put it all together. You've got a, a young, rich ruler that runs up to Jesus and kneels before him and engages him in conversation. We're not told what kind of ruler in particular he was. Was he a religious ruler? Was he a civil ruler? We don't know. It isn't particularly relevant. What is relevant, though, is as a ruler, he would have been very well known to everybody in the crowd. It's a pretty remarkable thing that he does here. For someone with that kind of authority and power and that kind of reputation to uphold in the community to run up to a poor, peasant, penniless preacher and bow before him on the ground and seek his guidance was a remarkably unusual thing, and it would have caused quite a stir. And the man has a burning question, though, on his heart. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, from our historical perspective on all of this, it's very easy to be right at the outset hard on this particular man. But there's an awful lot of good that, that, that is wrapped up in what he does here. I mean, he recognizes that he doesn't have eternal life. That's a good thing. That, I mean, he's down the road from a lot of people that you know and I know. He really looks at himself in the mirror and he knows, like, I don't have eternal life. This is something that I lack, and it's something that I need. 
Many of the people that you know and many of the people that I know are completely oblivious to that reality. It takes an awful lot of work with some people to bring them to that point where they even care about their soul. They even care about eternal life. They even care about what's going to happen beyond this life. This man's already there. That's a good thing. He just can't figure out what it is that he needs to do. But he knows he's missing something. In spite of all of his religious activity, in spite of his accumulated wealth, he knows that there's something missing in his soul. And he's trying to figure out what to do about it. Not only that, but he comes to the right person. He comes to Jesus. He doesn't fully understand who Jesus is at this point, right? He doesn't. But he's seen enough and he's heard enough to know at least that Jesus is from God and that he probably knows the answer to the question. And so he comes to him. He steps out in courage and he bows before him in front of everybody. Puts his reputation on the line. He comes to the right person, though. I mean, again, he's, he's, he's two steps down the road, well beyond a lot of the people you and I know. Even among the people that we know who are, are searching for something in their life, who know that their soul isn't right, who know that they don't have eternal life, and who are trying to figure that stuff out, even many of those are searching all over the place in every direction to try to find the answer, and they'll go anywhere and to anyone except Jesus. But not this guy. He knows who to go to, and he goes to the right person. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, Peter is preaching the gospel to a crowd, and here's what he says about Jesus. He makes it clear that Jesus is God incarnate, and that salvation is found in nobody else. Peter says this, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is, I want you to say this part with me, salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I mean, he, he knows he's missing something. He comes to the right person, to the only one who can save him. And he asks the right question, really, sort of. He wants to know, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Now, granted, his question is built up of uh, sort of a religious work, sort of a base. But to his credit, that's the only paradigm he has. That's what he's been taught his whole life, that if you want to earn God's favor, there are things that you do. You have to do certain things to earn God's favor. So that's the only backdrop that he has. But at least he's thinking about eternal matters. At least he's concerned about his soul. At least he's not living as all that matters are earthly things. And on the surface, what happened to my voice right there? Surface. No, he looks like a prime evangelistic candidate doesn't he i mean imagine that's you okay and you're at work or you're in public or you're somewhere and somebody comes up to you and says to you hey, excuse me sir excuse me ma'am what must i do to get eternal life i mean even if you are the most bashful evangelist in the world even if you're the christian that's most terrified to share your faith I mean, you couldn't get a better tee-up than that, right? I mean, he's a prime candidate for evangelism. I mean, even the most inept evangelist should be able to close that deal. He's young, he's rich, he's intelligent, he's influential, he's basically moral, he's already religious, he's eagerly seeking salvation. I mean, you couldn't set up somebody as a more appealing, outwardly, evangelistic target than that guy. And that's what makes Jesus' reply so astonishing. Most of us would say to that guy, 
let me lead you down the Roman road. Here's what it says right now. Now, I know the Roman road wasn't, you know, in his day. That's a little later. But you understand the first century equivalent before Paul. We would, we would lead him down the path to know Christ. We would say, oh, you don't need to do anything. Here's what you need to do. You need to trust in Jesus. You need to believe the gospel. You need to repent of your sin. And you need to rely on Christ. We'd get him to pray a prayer. We'd get him to sign a card. We'd get him to our church, and we'd baptize him. And we'd get him in a, in a city group, because that's what all godly good Christians do. Right, Kelly? They all go to city group. That's not what Jesus does, does he? No, Jesus does the opposite of all that. He first says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, that's a little opaque for us, sort of separated by some history, trying to understand what is Jesus talking about here when he's questioning whether, why the guy calls him good. I don't want to spend much time on this issue. Um, it's not obvious on the surface, but I think in brief, what is happening here in this particular context is it seems to be sort of an attempt at flattery without acknowledging that Jesus is divine. He's trying to flatter Jesus in some ways by calling him a good teacher without actually acknowledging and recognizing him as divine. And so Jesus is going to say to him, he's raising this question because he's questioning, why are you calling me a good teacher? Like either I'm good, meaning that I'm God, or I'm bad and I'm a man but I can't be just a good teacher. That's the point Jesus is trying to make. But it's the second part of his reply that I want to give attention to. It's so shocking. He doesn't tell him what he needs to do to be saved in the way that you and I would do that. He says to him, take a look at the law of Moses, why don't you? You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. He directs him to the law of Moses. The man is asking the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's done a lot in his life. He's acquired wealth. He's acquired status. He's acquired authority. And there's one thing that he hasn't done yet, and that's acquire security for his soul. Something is missing, and he's looking for what to do about it. But Jesus doesn't say to him, it's a perfect opportunity for Jesus to say, what do you mean, what do you do? You don't do anything. It's a perfect opportunity for Jesus to say, in fact, you don't have to do a single thing. Salvation is a free gift of grace. Just receive it. But instead, Jesus says, take a look at the last five of the Ten Commandments. He points out the, the five dealing with human relationships on the backside. I don't know exactly why, except perhaps that he's looking at these as perhaps more black and white, more tangible to be able to sort of evaluate yourself by whether you're obeying them or not. But why does he do this? Why does he point him to the law of Moses instead of just telling him that salvation is a free gift to be received by grace? He does that because he knows that this man does not understand that he is a sinner. And so he points him to the law with the goal of exposing his heart to his own self when he compares himself to the law, seeing that the law defines holiness here and looking at himself, realizing that he's living down here and the gap realizing, helping him to see that he's a sinner who's in need of salvation, who can't do anything. He hasn't even been able to keep the Ten Commandments. In order for a person to enter the kingdom of God by doing something, a person would have to obey the totality of God's law perfectly, always, and forever. It's the only way to do something to get into heaven. It's to obey God's law perfectly forever. 
So in order for this man to be saved, a man who hasn't done that, he has to admit that he's a sinner. He has to admit he's fallen short of God's standard. He has to own the fact that he's rebelled against God. He's got to come to realize that his behavior and his activity and his rebellion has earned him an eternity in hell. And apart from God's work on his behalf, he can't do anything. And so Jesus says, how about the the last five? See, the purpose of the law, you heard it in Romans 7 when John read it a little earlier. The purpose of the law is to expose to us what sin is so that we can see how far we fall short. And had this man been able to see clearly, he would have responded like the tax collector in Jesus' parable earlier. Do you remember that tax collector who's in the back of the temple at the worship service and all he can say, all he can do is beat his breast and say, have mercy on me, God, the sinner. It's my only hope. But this guy doesn't respond like that because he's blind to his sinfulness. He says, all these I've kept from my youth. So I got those five I got. Ever since my bar mitzvah, I got those five down. What are you talking about, Jesus? What do you mean? I'd done all that. His answer reveals that he sees the law as flexible and he sees his own effort as sufficient. He hasn't murdered anybody, and that's probably true. He probably hasn't committed adultery either, at least overtly an act. But claiming he's never lied, do you find that a little suspicious? Never lied, grown man, never lied, never borne false witness in any way. He's always honored his parents perfectly. In a way that would please the Lord? Find that a little suspicious? I find it suspicious. I mean, I was about one before I broke, maybe two. Whenever I started talking, I broke both of those right out. The problem is he's blind. He won't admit that he's a sinner. He won't admit that he's a sinner because he doesn't see himself that way. And what we see in the rest of Jesus' response is not only will he not admit that he's a sinner, is he won't submit to Jesus as Lord and King over his life. And that's the other thing that he needs to see very clearly. Number one, to enter the kingdom, you have to admit you're a sinner. And number two, you have to submit to Jesus as King and Lord over your life. And he's not willing to do that. And Jesus makes it clear by pointing out the rest of his reply. He says, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all you have and distribute to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Is Jesus teaching us here that the way to enter the kingdom is by liquidating assets and following Jesus? You just do all that and you'll be in the kingdom? Absolutely not. He doesn't tell anybody that anywhere ever. But he tells this man that. Why? It's as though Jesus is saying, all right, the last five of the, of, the, of the ten didn't get your attention. Let's just go back to the beginning at number one. Like, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. I'm a jealous God, and I won't compete with anyone or anything for your heart and for your allegiance. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's go to that one. In particular, let me help you analyze that in terms of how you regard your wealth. He just sticks his finger into this man's heart, and he says, you want to know where your problem is? Your problem is right here. You have another God in your life, and it's your wealth. And if you want to come and follow after me, then you need to, you need to kick that God off the throne of your life. And then you can come and follow me, and I'll sit on the throne. 
but I won't compete with another. And in your life, that's your wealth. So you want to come after me? Get rid of it all. Put that God to death in your life and come follow me. Can you imagine if somebody approached, let's just say the Archbishop of Canterbury, pulled Charles to the third off to the side and said, Charles, if you really want to enter the kingdom of God, here's what you need to do. To sell all this stuff. You need to get rid of all this stuff. All the royal robes, the big gold chariot thing, the holy hand grenade, all that stuff. Get rid of it. All your mansions, all your servants, all your chefs, all your butlers, all your royal clothes, all your titles and all your inheritance. Just ditch it all and come follow after Christ. Let him rule your life. How easy do you think it would be for Charles the third to walk away from all that you saw last weekend. Be nearly impossible. Humanly, it's impossible, isn't it? It's impossible. When you consider what Jesus is saying here to this, this man in the context of a Jewish religious faith that regarded wealth as a blessing from the Lord, uh, regarded the idea that when you were wealthy, that meant the wealth itself was a sign of God's favor in your life. And here is Jesus saying to him, if you want to really know God and enter his kingdom, you have to ditch all your wealth. You got to get rid of it all. That would have thrown everybody into complete turmoil. And it's exactly what happens. That's why when the people hear it, what do they say? Well, who in the world can be saved then? If a wealthy person, the person who has the most visible outward signs of God's blessing in their life, if it's impossible for them to get into the kingdom, then it's got to be double impossible for everybody else. Who in the world could possibly be saved? And that's when Jesus says this to wrap it up. He says, God can do what men can't. What is impossible with man is possible with God. What's impossible with man is possible with God. He's simply saying salvation is a gracious miracle worked by God. It's not a human achievement. It's nearly impossible for rich people to get there, but it's not entirely impossible for them to get there because God can work the miracle in their heart to transform them in their heart, in their love, in their affections. We're going to see in chapter 19 a beautiful example of that in the life of a man called Zacchaeus, a very rich man who responds to the gospel very differently than this man. This man, we're told, walks away sad. He is not willing to part with his functional God as well. Zacchaeus, on the other hand, says, all right, Jesus, I'll get rid of it all. I'll give it away to the poor. Anybody I've robbed, I'll give him four times as much back. Whatever it takes, man, I'll ditch it all, and I'm coming after you. It's not impossible for a rich man to be saved. It's only possible if God transforms their heart and opens their eyes to their sinfulness. And they respond to that in humble dependence, trusting in Christ. But make no mistake about this. Jesus Christ never offers salvation to anybody who will not bow before him as king and submit their lives to him as Lord. He will not compete with other gods in a man or a woman's life. Enter the kingdom, you bow before him and you pledge your allegiance to him and to him alone. Tomorrow is our anniversary. It's our 25th anniversary. 25 years ago, 
You can applaud. That's a good thing. It is, in fact, a miracle of God that Daniel has put up with me for 25 years. But 25 years ago, tomorrow, I stood at an altar, not this one, in a different place. And I made promises to her. I'm going to be faithful and true to you and you alone as long as we both shall live. That was the only terms on which she would marry me. It's the only terms. Can you imagine if I had stood at our wedding and said something along the lines of, I promise to love and cherish you in sickness and in health and forsaking everyone else except Sally. I pledge my heart to you forever. Can you imagine what she would say to me? Honey, I love you above everybody else, and I'm going to be faithful to you above everybody except Sally. Because, you know, a good backup is always a good thing. I don't know how this thing's going to go down the road. You know what? There wouldn't have been a marriage, would there? Any of you ladies, would you marry your husband on that term? You wouldn't, would you? Your demand is it'll be loyal to you and you alone. Why would Christ expect anything less of his people? Do you really believe that you can come to Christ and say, Lord, I want you to be Lord and Savior of my life. I give you my life, my heart, my soul, my eternity, except for this one little area of my life that I'm going to keep for myself, except for my wealth, except for my career, except for my education, except for my, you fill in the blank, whatever the temptation is in your life. Jesus offers, the kingdom is not open to somebody who comes on those terms. It's open to those who, like little children, come to Christ, helpless and dependent, trusting him alone to save them. Anybody who does that is welcomed. Anybody who tries to reserve a piece of their life for themselves. Jesus says, no, thank you. You keep your God. I'll go about my way. Let me tell you, if you're on the fence this morning, you're concerned about your soul, there's only one response that makes sense. Come to Jesus this morning. Bow before him in helpless dependence. Not offering any achievements, not holding anything in your life back. And say to him, Lord, I want you to save my soul. I am a sinner. I have failed you a thousand times over. I have no merit to earn your favor. My only hope is that you would die for my sins and by your blood cover over my sin, that you would forgive me and that you would give me eternal life. And from this day forward, my life, whatever it is, all parts of it are yours. I can't live that perfectly, but I'm offering it up to you. If you come to him like that, he'll open the door wide to the kingdom for you. Won't you do that? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to think about these things and talk about them this morning. I thank you for the patience of these folks that have listened intently. But I pray, Lord, that your word would get to the core of their hearts. And if there's anyone who, like that young man in the story today, has come on those terms thinking they could just add you as a piece of their life but not submit to you as king and lord, that just this picture of the coronation last week would be a vivid 
image of what they need to do with you, bow before you and pledge allegiance to their whole lives. Not holding anything back. I pray that you would draw them to do that today. Maybe there's a mom here today who needs to be saved. Would you draw her? Maybe there's a dad who needs to be saved. Maybe there's a young person who's been walking the line and just hasn't committed themselves to you fully. Would you draw them this morning for your own glory? We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.